welcome to the 21st episode of the Red Sox and Filter Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Green. We've got a pretty cool episode for you guys today. Um, joining me, as always, is my co-host, Dave Latham. Dave, say hi to everybody. Hello, everybody. Sorry about the one-week delay, but we think we have everything worked out right now. We're ready to roll. We are ready to roll. Uh, yeah, we did not record last week. This was a hiatus, so it's probably been two weeks since you listened to one of these. But we're back, and we're hopefully better than ever. Uh, the Red Sox had a very um, kind of tr- uh, kind of tough two weeks, I would say. I mean, this week they've kind of picked it up together, but the sweep of the Rays last week was kind of difficult, and it was weird because that was like the first kind of adversity they've really faced all season, and, and they've responded pretty admirably against the Marlins. Um, obviously, they had the walk-off error, which we'll talk about in a second, and then they lost in that two-hour rain delay last night, which we'll also talk about in a second, but yeah, it's been a nice bounce-back week, I guess, for the Red Sox against really, really bad competition. So, uh, yeah, let's get into this thing, and we're going to start breaking down the Marlins and the White Sox series. Um, to begin, on Tuesday night, it was the Red Sox versus the Miami Marlins, and the Red Sox won 8-7, so yay, that's good. Um, this came off of a walk-off error botched double play attempt by Riddle. The throw was errant. Um, the first base could not scoop it, and it just went past him for the wins. Nunez was the one who actually hit the ball, so he got doused in Gatorade. He was the hero. Um, and the Red Sox probably didn't deserve to win this game, but they did, so who the hell cares? Brian Johnson pitched 4-1 and one-third with one earned run, three strikeouts, and one walk. It was basically the epitome of a Brian Johnson start, and it was good. It wasn't great. Uh, he didn't go many innings, but he got the win. So, oh, actually, no, he didn't get the win. The Red Sox got the win, and he pitched decently well. Um, the bullpen, though, this is like where the bullpen kind of was a poster child for their struggles in recent weeks. They allowed six earned runs in four and two-third innings after Brian Johnson had pitched pretty well before that. Um, This includes Matt Barnes, who had been the Red Sox best reliever to this point, probably. He allowed four earned runs in, what, a third of an inning? Yeah, I think it was a third. Craig Kimbrell allowed another run, so Kimbrell's struggles continued. And Heath Hembree, who has looked pretty good in the middle months of the summer, has just kind of collapsed as well. It's not as noticeable, but... Hembury, Barnes, and Kimbrell, which were integral parts of the bullpen last year, especially this year, and now they're kind of just all collapsing collectively. Um, Dave, I wanted to know what is up with this bullpen and if you had any thoughts specifically regarding Craig Kimbrell's struggles. Yes, so um, I don't really sleep all that much. It's just who I am. So at 5 o'clock in the morning, instead of uh, like, while I get ready to go to work, I have a few hours to kill. So I usually dive into fan graphs. And uh, one of my more recent dives, I went, what's happening with Matt Barnes? So he's been a really great reliever for the grand majority of the season. Up until August 7th, he was one of the best in baseball. Um, His numbers, honestly, they very closely mirrored Chapman's of the Yankees. So he was really having a fantastic season. And then all of a sudden, he wasn't. So I dug deep into the numbers, and I think the biggest problem with Barnes, from what I drew out of it, is that he's not locating enough of his pitches for strikes early in the count. Um, back when he was going good, he was hitting, he was uh, leading off the count with a strike over 50% of the time. Since August 7th, and these numbers haven't been updated to any starts since the Marlins game. I'm not even sure if he's appeared in them, but since then, his uh, down at like 38%. Obviously, that's bad. Hitters are sitting more on the count. Um, they're able to pick their pitch with them, and that's really leading to them driving the ball a lot harder. 
Um, Barnes is also, um, he has like a four-something BABIP right now, which is obviously going to go down. So that's been artificially inflating his stats a little bit. But it hasn't been good. I do believe he'll turn it around. He just needs to work on getting the ball more in the strike zone. Yeah. W- what about Craig Kimbrell? What are your thoughts with him? Yeah, Craig, um, he's just he's just in a rough rut right now. Um, I really don't know what to say about that, Pat. In one of your daily dose sessions, you broke that down very well. He's lost some velocity. He's lost a bit of his command. So, I mean, that's obviously discouraging. But at the same point, it's Craig Kimbrell. He has a very long track record of being one of the best closers in baseball. I expect him to find his norm. Great players typically do. Yeah, and Kimbrell is a great closer. Um, as as you said before, 2017 was just so good. And, and I've said this before, too, on the podcast. Probably. I bet I did. Kimbrell's 2017 was unsustainable. He was irrationally good, like ERA under 150, FIP around 150. That was never going to continue. So, I mean, I guess he's facing some natural regression to the mean, maybe. But there are some concerning trends. I won't say they're overly concerning because he's still striking out guys like 14K per 9, 13K per 9. And he still doesn't allow much hard contact his problem this year is his walks per nine literally have rose about almost 3.00 so he was like 150 last year his walk per nine which is great his command was exquisite this year it's 425 that's above average for a pitcher i don't know how that happened i don't know how he's lost that much command and again like the it's the fastball command specifically where he's run into issues and the effectiveness of the fastball too Pitch play, uh, hitters are hitting the fastball pretty dang hard, especially relative to years past. It's lost a tick. I think it's 1.5 miles per hour from last year. Um, he's not getting as many outside, like outside the zone swing percentages, which are, you know, if hitters are offering at pitches that are balls, it's usually a good thing because one, they're more likely to miss. And two, if they make contact, it's going to be crap. Um, with this, and now they're hitting him in the zone more often. So when he has these fastballs, and I mean, the curveball has still been excellent this year, but when the fastballs are leaked over the plate and they're being hit, they're in the strike zone. And what are pitches in the strike zone? Better to hit. So that's um, probably gone into his, I guess, inflated home run number two. His home runs per nine is up. Um, I think the most salient thing is, and I, I alluded to this already, but there are pitch values over at Fangraphs, and they basically tell you how many runs a pitch is worth. Obviously, this is not hard science. I mean, I guess it kind of is hard science, but there's a lot of room for error because pitches work in sequences. Um, but the pitch value was 19.0, which is incredible for any pitch. The fastball was a 19.0 score in 2017. That is incredible. That is elite. He had one of the better fastballs in the league. I mean, obviously, it's got a lot of life. It's got a lot of zip. But it's 2.9 this year, which is a considerable, considerable, considerable fall off. And yeah, that's been that's been Kimbrell's biggest bugaboo. And I think that this I think he'll still be very good. I don't think he'll be the elite closer we saw. And we'll see what happens down the stretch. He's still very good. I think the biggest thing here now becomes looking into the future because he is a free agent after this season. Uh, Dave, do you think the Boston Red Sox should re-sign Craig Kimbrell? I know we still have time to go. We'll still have financial stuff to figure out here. But as of now, do you think the Red Sox would be smart to re-sign Craig Kimbrell in the offseason? I I do not think the Red Sox are going to re-sign Craig Kimbrell, but I'd be thinking that regardless of how good he was this year. I mean, when you look at um, all the great young players we have, Mookie Betts and Andrew Bogarts, not as much Benny endeavors there under team control for a while, but a lot of guys are about to get paid, and as it is, we are really riding the uh, uh, salary cap or uh, the luxury tax line. 
So I don't think we can afford to bring back Kimbrell. I, the guy is still a good pitcher, but he's going to be paid like an elite one for a long time. And really, when guys get over 30, especially guys that rely on throwing 100 miles an hour, when they lose that velocity, they're, they really lose a lot of their effectiveness. So really, as Kimbrell ages, as he gets older, he's going to lose that velocity. And a few years down the line, you're, whichever team ends up signing him, they're going to be paying a lot of money for a guy who's really not worth that anymore. He's going to get something of a lifetime achievement accomplishment contract, which um, I really am not a big fan of teams giving those out. So I think our best move would be to uh, move on from Kimbrell next year and sort of just find the next guy in the upcoming offseason. And I'm sure we'll talk about Craig Kimbrell and what the contract situation is him with him in the offseason because, you know, that's it'll get closer. I envision him getting something similar to Roldis Chapman, which on the top of my head, I think it was four years, 80 mil, five years, 100 mil. I think it's like 20 million per year. That's so much for a closer. I, I know closers are valuable. And if you know a thing about Dave Dombrowski, it's in his career, he has perpetually not had a good closer. Um, his bullpens have always been a, a, a place of strife when he's built these like awesome teams for the Detroit Tigers, and he never had that reliable closer. So now that he has this attachment and he has a good closer, I think he's going to have, and he's seen failures that can ensue without having an elite arm in the bullpen. He might go for it. He might bite. Red Sox shouldn't, though, because... Yeah, he's first of all, he's a reliever. I would never sign a reliever to a big term deal. Relievers are inherently more volatile, not as much volatile, more volatile as you'd think, but they're still very volatile. So I don't think the Red Sox should be spending money. And as you alluded to, Dave, that's a that's a bit. They have some really big contracts coming up, and they they're going to need that. And they're already really high over the luxury tax this year. They'll have some payroll shed next year, and the luxury tax is kind of, when you go over it, there's diminishing penalties, but it's still a thing that they need to think about financial prudence here. I don't know what their number is, but yeah, Kimbrell is going to be super expensive. I don't think they should resign him, um, and I'm saying this on September 1st, 2018. My mind might change. Probably not. I don't think relievers should ever get that much money, and I hope the Red Sox stay away, but Kimbrell's awesome. And that's the bottom line. Kimbrell is an amazing closer, um, and he deserves a big contract. I just don't think it's right for the Red Sox to do that with their financial constraints or my perception of what their financial constraints and obstacles will be going forward. So, yeah, that's what I believe about Craig Kimbrell. And now we move on to Wednesday night's game. Wednesday night's game, the Red Sox won 14-6 to over the Miami Marlins. Um, 16 hits for the Red Sox in this one. That's a lot of hits. Betts and Nunez both hit homers. Nunez homered for the second straight game. His bat's starting to be good, I guess. And um, they were propelled by a jaw-dropping 11-run seventh inning. Trevor Richards before that, who was a starter, we faced him in April. Red Sox shelled him. This game, not so much. He went five and a third, and he only allowed three earned runs. He did pretty dang well. That was surprising. That shouldn't happen. Uh, Trevor Richards is, I guess, a good story, but... He's not a very good pitcher, and the Red Sox lineup is obviously amazing. So that was interesting. But the big thing that happened in this game was David Price. David Price exited early after getting nailed by a line drive on the wrist. He is day-to-day and will probably miss his next start. Um, Dave, are you concerned about David Price's injury at all? When it first happened, I was terrified because I think it was a 102-mile-an-hour line drive right back at him, right off the left forearm. And I'm thinking, oh boy, here we go. This guy just cannot get a break. Ever since the All-Star break, Chris Sale's you know, been hurt more than healthy. So Price has been the ace of this staff, and he's been doing a fantastic job. 
when I saw him get hit that hard, and then when he went, he covered the bag on first, which was a great recovery play by him, but he went straight to the clubhouse, and, you know, Nesson's camera, you could see, like, where the bruise was on his arm after it happened. Like, you could see this color. I'm thinking, oh, boy, let's hope he's back for the playoffs. I didn't think he was going to be back for a while because this team needs David Price, especially with um, how guys through the rotation have been struggling. Rick Porcello's had a rough go of it lately. Evaldi's had a tough time. You're getting Eddie back, which is obviously going to help, but you really need Price to be the number two guy. And I mean, if Chris Sale's gone, this team really doesn't have too much of a chance, but David Price theoretically could be the number one guy in a playoff. He has that ability. I'd much rather it be Sale, but you know, if you have sale and prices, you're one and two going into the playoffs. Things are looking really good for the Red Sox. So you really need to have David Price around. Yeah, David Price is crucial. Rotations are crucial in postseasons in general. Sale, we'll talk about him later, but it seems like he'll hopefully make two more starts in the regular season, according to Alex Cora, and then pitch in the postseason. So Sale should be okay. Price's injury was a little scary when it happened because it was such a shot. I think he came out back into the dugout after getting evaluated in like the seventh inning, and he had his cast on, and he was smiling. I don't think the X-ray results were in at that point, but he looked like he... He kind of like gave off the vibe that it was not serious because he came out with a smile. Or yeah, that happened, right? I think that happened. So that kind of like alleviated. Yeah. That did happen, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that alleviated my concern um, when he did that. So yeah, David Price should be okay. He's gonna probably miss his next start, which was scheduled against the Atlanta Braves in interleague play. He would have had to hit which kind of probably factored into the decision, too, because, you know, hitting requires a lot of wrist movement. I mean, yeah, so good thing he's he'll, he'll be on the... It was his left wrist, too, so that was his throwing hand, right? It was the left wrist. Yeah, yeah, it was the left wrist. Yeah. That made it even worse. <laughs> yeah, so that <laughs> that's why it's probably even worse than it is, but he should be okay. Moving to Thursday, the Red Sox won 9-4 to over the White Sox. Betts hit his 29th homer. J.D. Martinez hit his 39th homer, and it was a three-run oppo shot. Uh, according to the Nesson broadcast last night, that was only his third home run in guaranteed rate field. It's called guaranteed rate field now. I didn't know they made this switch. I thought it was still cellular field. Um, I don't know how I where I've been for the past two years, but I have not been watching a lot of White Sox baseball, obviously, because I just realized it was not cellular field anymore. But yeah, not much to watch. No, there's not much to watch except Michael Kopech now, I guess. Um, but J- JDM, yeah, it was his third home run in, at guaranteed rate field um, or cellular field. Yeah, but it he played for the Tigers for a very long time, so that was kind of surprising. And cellular field, guaranteed rate field, is not. It's a pretty big hitter's park. It's not very slanted to hitters, but it's definitely not a pitcher's park. Um, Purcello also struggled in this one. He five innings pitched, four earned runs. He punched out seven, and he walked three. So they got nine runs between the seventh and ninth innings. I believe they scored four in the seventh, and then they scored five in the ninth to mount another comeback. They were down 3-0. Um, so, yeah, that was good. Um, they mounted a comeback in the on Wednesday night, too. So the comeback team is alive and well. Dave, what were your thoughts on this game? Yeah, so, I mean, this Red Sox team just does not know the meaning of the word quit. Um, you know, Porcello started off the game with uh, three runs in the first, and then you gave up another in the second, and you're down 4 nothing early. So you got a big hole to build yourself out of. But, you know, after that, we were shut out. I don't think the White Sox did its job, and the offense just came to life and just 
tore apart Chicago's bullpen, you know. This team can beat you in so many ways. It, the starter doesn't need to be good. I'm a little bit worried about how bad Rick Porcello's been lately, but um, I, I, don't know, I feel like he will straighten it out. He's been, like I said, he's been a lot more good than he's been bad this year. And he's good against the good teams, but not so much against the bad teams. So, I mean, I guess I'd rather prefer that to bad against the good ones and good against the bad ones. So, you know, I'm a little bit worried about Porcello, but aside from that, I came out of Thursday feeling really good about the team. At least it wasn't the Blue Jays. We don't need to perpetuate that narrative any more than it is. But yeah, the struggle against in this game. Um, moving to Friday, the White Sox, 6-1 to one victory. Actually, this was last night, early this morning, I guess. Uh, the White Sox won 6-1 to one over the Red Sox. D- Dave, did you stay up for this game? Were you able to push past the two-hour rain delay? Nope. I was interested in watching that game to see how Evaldi did and see how Kopech did. They both pitched two innings because the game went on for uh, the rain delay went on for two hours. It was coming back at 11 o'clock. I thought not worth it. So I did not see the sec- second half, and it sounds like I didn't miss too much. We lost 6-1. Benny had a homer, though. That's nice. I haven't seen much of that lately. Yeah, that was his second home run since July 8th. That was Andrew Benintendi's second home run since July 8th. That is crazy. His 16th of the year. Um, I didn't stay up early either. My bedtime has like progressively gotten earlier and earlier. So I was in bed by like 1030 and I was like, screw this. I'm not going to wait for a two hour rain delay. And it was like two plus hours. So I, I saw the box score. I watched the beginning of the game and that's probably all I needed to see because um, I wanted to see how Evoldi did. He's been struggling lately. Um, so he started off ugly. Um, three runs in the first inning, including a Yon Mankata home run, two run shot to left field, which that's shout out to another ex Red Sox prospect, which Michael Kopech, who pitched in this game for the White Sox, is also part of that Chris Sale deal. Um, so I guess Pedro Martinez's strategy didn't work. I know it was two innings, small sample size, and like that's very hard to change what his mechanics were. So basically, if people have been paying attention, Pedro Martinez said he saw something with Nate Avoli's delivery that he wanted to work on him with. So they did just that. They convened, and um, what Pedro told Nate was he had been landing on his heel instead of the toe, the front toe. So he doesn't have as much command, apparently, of his off-speed pitch or his fastball, specifically the off-speed. But... Um, I was watching for his landing foot to see if there was any difference. And, like, I didn't really have a frame reference because I wasn't watching Nate Evoldi's landing foot in the beginning. I was seeing, did he land on his toe or was he landing on his heel? I could not discern much. Um, and then I realized this is hard to evaluate. Like, I don't, I'm not great with pitcher mechanics. I'm not great at identifying them, like these subtle nuances in someone's delivery. And I was watching for the two innings he actually pitched, and I could tell absolutely nothing. I had no frame of reference to work with, and I could not tell if he was actually um, doing anything significantly different. Obviously, the results were not great. Um, you can't judge it in that small sample. And, like, literally, that's so hard to change. You've been throwing one way your entire life, and then you have a session with Pedro Martinez and it's supposed to change. I don't know. That seems very soon. Maybe he works on it in the offseason. Probably won't be a Red Sox anyway. But, yeah, that... Uh, that was interesting. What, what were your thoughts, Dave, on this Pedro Martinez helping Nate Avoldi out? What did you think? So when I first heard it, I thought, okay, here comes the Cy Young back to Boston. It's Avoldi. He's never going to allow a run again, and he's probably going to end up in the Hall of Fame because it's Pedro Martinez. He knows what he's talking about. Exactly. Um, you know, obviously, we only had two innings to watch the guy yesterday, but the first inning, it didn't look like 
Uh, he's quite figured it out yet. Um, something interesting that I saw after the game, Cora was saying Evaldi might be throwing too many strikes, which I, I thought that was interesting because we've talked about it a lot here. Evaldi's big thing is that he will not walk men. He like targets the strike zone early and often, and obviously it's better to hit the strike zone a lot than to struggle to hit it. But Cora got me thinking, and maybe like because Evaldi's constantly throwing strikes, he's constantly throwing, obviously, pitches, pitchers that batters are able to hit. Maybe if he puts a few more balls intentionally outside off the frame, his stuff probably isn't good enough to get guys out if he's throwing it for strikes all the time. If he's making guys chase bad pitches, that might be the secret to helping him out. I don't I don't know, but it makes it makes sense like in a way that, that definitely could be a thing that could help him moving forward. So I'm interested to see if that helps and I'm interested to see Moving forward, if Evaldi just needs more time to work on whatever it is Pedro was teaching him. Um, so hopefully he can get back to being the guy that he was uh, the first two starts because obviously he you want Evaldi to be the best version of himself he can be. He's going to be a big part of this playoff run. So here's hoping. Yeah, I don't know what capacity that would be, if it's going to be bullpen or rotation, but he is going to be an integral part presumably. Um, so I, yeah, I, I really thought it was interesting what you just said that I didn't even hear that Cora was saying he's throwing too many strikes, but that that's intriguing and I could get behind it. Cause I wrote for the daily dose actually this morning that his walk rate is actually less than it was at Tampa. He's one of the, I think he's got the lowest walk rates among pitchers with at least a hundred innings, maybe 90 innings. Um, so he doesn't walk people, but his strikeouts, his K per nine has cratered coming from the Rays to the Red Sox. So he was striking guys out at like 8.5, which is like almost a batter an inning. It's above average for a starting pitcher. He was doing good. He was getting his healthy fair of strikeouts, which are, you know, the outs that he takes into his hand, and he was not walking anyone. That's a good recipe. But then when he came over to the Red Sox, his strikeout rate has literally fallen by 3.00. So it's now like 5.5 or 5.25 per nine, something like that. I don't have the exact number, but it's in the fives, mid fives, low fives. And that's bad. That's like Hector Velasquez-esque. You don't want to strike people out like Hector Velasquez. That's not a jab at Hector Velasquez. It's just a law. And and Voldy is coming from a place where he has the stuff where he can strike out guys more than he is. And the fact he's not and he's relying on contact and it, it showed like the contact is like it's valuable because he's allowing extra base hits. He's allowing runs to score. He has more runs um, scored than earned runs. I think he's scored, allowed 17 earned runs in his last 19 innings. But if you do just pure runs he's allowed like 26 something like that so like when you put balls in play it's obviously more dangerous than if you just don't if you just strike people out and you don't have to rely on the finicky nature of your fielders to do this work and the fact that he's lost a lot of outs that way is concerning and yeah maybe it is the fact that he's not he's throwing too many strikes so he's not getting those punch outs um so i can subscribe to that philosophy definitely worth giving into a deeper look um, so yeah, maybe we'll have a better answer for you next week with that, and maybe we can do some analytical research. But Nate Voldy is is uh, somewhat of a somewhat of a crap show right now, and it's weird because he's coming from such a place of high caliber with those Yankees that Yank scoreless game against the Yankees and the Twins. It's unfortunate because Voldy seemed like he had figured it out post Tommy John surgery. He seemed like one of the better buys on the market. He seemed to be coming back, but like you cannot anticipate that drop in strikeout because I cannot find a discerning reason why. Maybe he's throwing too much strikes. Maybe that's the reason. I don't know. We'll figure that out. Um, 
But also in this game, Kopech, I said, pitched three innings. He ended up pitching three, and he was scoreless. The Red Sox had some opportunities, though. Like, especially against him early, they had he plunked bets in the first batter, just like a fastball, really hard. Scared the dickens out of me, but he was okay. Um, obviously, no intent there. And then he walked Benintendi on four straight pitches. He didn't throw a strike until, like, the sixth pitch. And when he finally got his first strike, they gave him a mock cheer. And they had first and second no outs. Looked like a perfect opportunity to put some runs early on the board. But they failed because Betts made a base running mistake, Tootland, and then, um, and then. But by the way, do you, do you know what Tootland means, Dave? I, I just learned what it means like the other day. No idea. No idea what Tootland means. Yeah. So I, I've heard the term thrown around baseball Twitter a lot and like actually for three years and I never bothered to look it up until I was reading the only rule it has it has to work by Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller and basically toot plan means thrown out on the base paths like a nincompoop so yeah with the Red Sox this year they've done a lot of things well but they've toot bland the crap out of it too so yeah that's a thing <laughs> yeah Betts had his own toot plan and I know Betts is amazing but he is he is not uh, immune from having a toot plan moment and Thornburg gave up three runs after everyone, most people, were in bed. So, yeah, three-run home run to Matt Davidson. Um, There's not much more to talk about in this game, partially because I didn't watch it and I was asleep, but also because it was kind of after the first couple innings, it wasn't very exciting. It It was just kind of the White Sox scoring more runs. Drew Pomeranz pitched well. I don't know if you saw that. He went four innings, four and a third innings, zero earned runs. That was interesting. Six strikeouts, zero walks. Good for him. So, do you have any further thoughts on this game you want to talk about before we moved on? Uh, not really. That one sucks, so why bother talking about it? Good for you, Palm. I'm still never trusting you with the postseason spot. Yeah, that's true. Me too. But it was uh, pretty interesting. I actually saw some people on Twitter who are now trying to lobby for Pomerantz to take Eovoldi's spot in the rotation, which is... Uh, oh, boy, guys. Yeah. Right. Let's, let's pump the brakes on that one right now. Drew Pomerantz is doing good because he's, well, one, he's had, like, two good appearances, so let's pump the brakes for a second. And two, he's in the bullpen. He doesn't have to give as much of himself. If he's still doing great in, like, like the end of September, if he puts on a month straight of, like, really good performances, maybe I'll think about it. But too small of a sample size, guys. Don't forget what happened literally during the entirety of this season. Most of you wanted to launch him into the sun. <laughs> Didn't he hit 93 the other day on the radar gun? Yeah, he did. He did. He was doing mop-up duty. I think it was um, in the last game against the Marlins. Like, uh, yeah, it was because I had the recap and I was watching it, and um, I was getting ready to hit publish when he got the final out. And I saw at the bottom the little strike zone gun said 93, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> that, that's like Palmerin's good fastball. What's happening? If he has that back, maybe he belongs in the rotation. No, I'm kidding. He he doesn't. He 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 has a lot to prove before they even consider that. But 93 is encouraging. Um, things I've been looking for this year, I guess, from now on: Pomeranz's velocity and Native Oldie's landing foot. Weird things to look at, but that's what I'll be I'll be paying attention to as September rolls around. But I think this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time talking about because this is the really interesting stuff. So, uh, 40-man roster expansions. It's September 1st. People were called up. They were announced late last night, actually, between the rain delay um, in the third inning. So, Eduardo Rodriguez came off the DL. He's scheduled to pitch tonight. Um, it's, he might pitch tonight. It's really The weather looks horrible. We'll see if they get that in. Steven writes off the DL. Christian Vasquez is activated from the DL. It's been a while since I've 
seeing those players. So exciting. Erod's I'm most excited about. Um, and then there were five players who were called up um, and put on the Red Sox roster from AAA. Um, so Zuby Lin, the tsunami is coming up. He is very versatile. I kind of I'm not shocked about that one really. He hasn't performed as well this year as he has in last year, but I'm kind of I'm I'm on board with that. What were your thoughts on Zuby Lin coming up, Dave? Well, um, everyone has identity. It's just written in the Red Sox lore. If you don't like Zuby Lin, I don't like you. I'm not surprised <laughs> to see him come up. You know, he's been the utility infielder. He's on the forty. And he's a pretty good defensive replacement, pretty good base runner from what we've seen. Can't hit to save his life, but he's basically Devin Marrero. And if he's coming up for a spot on the 40, um, you know, so be it. He can rest guys, and I think he'll see a lot of playing time if and when we clinch the division just to keep everybody fresh. So, you know, good for him. Glad to see him up. Yeah, I feel like he's a more versatile Devin Marrero. Good defender. I think he's a better hitter than Devin Marrero. I know that's not saying much because everyone's that's a better. That's a very low bar. That's, that is a very low bar because everyone can hit better than Devin Marrero. But, yeah, Zoe Lin, I think, is a slightly better hitter, a little more valuable. So we'll, we'll see what his, his role is. Um, Sam Travis, um, I... I uh, 92 WRC plus this year. I guess he's like one of the few position players on the 40 man, and he'll allow some players to get rest in September because the Red Sox have a nice seven and a half lead right now over the Yankees, and hopefully they'll clinch mid September, and then we can rest the crap out of everyone else. But yeah, Sam Travis uh, doesn't probably deserve it, but the Red Sox don't have a lot of options. Don't don't think very highly of him. He hits too many balls on the ground. He has some power potential never shows it uh dave what about sam travis what you feeling with him yeah i'm with you pat he's i'm really not a fan he's just the most meh boring bland player alive he he can like he exists which i guess is nice he's not the worst thing in the world which i guess is nice but again he shouldn't really see too much playing time unless you really need to rest more than pierce Again, if and when we clinch the division, like if we have an extra week, week and a half, and we just don't want to play anyone important, Sam Travis is your starting first baseman. But until then, I don't want to see him on the field too much. Yeah, me neither. Keep keep Travis off the field just as a bench depth role, I guess. I don't know. Uh, Williams Cuevas, don't know if I pronounced that right. Hopefully I did. He He's made a few cameos with the Red Sox this year. He's been kind of in a uh, swingman, spot starter kind of role. I don't even know if he ever started a game. I don't think he did, but he came in long relief a couple times. Maybe no, he didn't as far as I can start. remember. Yeah, I think he just came in long relief um, twice. One was against the Nationals. I think it was on July 4th. And the other one was against, oh, man, I think it was a doubleheader against the Baltimore Orioles. He looked okay. He's having very, he's having great success in AAA. He's got like a 3-14 ERA. His FIP is worse. He's got pretty decent strikeout numbers. Doesn't walk a whole lot of guys. He's like the epitome of eh. Um, him and Justin Haley are super similar, so it was like pick, pick which guy you like better because they're really the same. They're probably going to give you the same thing. So they, they chose Cuevas, and I'm not I'm not quarreling with it, so that's good. They get more relief depth. Uh, Dave, what are your thoughts on him? Yeah, he's a career minor leaguer. I mean, he exi- well, he's a lot like Sam Travis. He exists, and he can eat up innings in games that don't matter so that guys that are important don't have to. So I'm... Um, glad about that i guess um you know pitching when it doesn't matter if the game's out of hand one way or the other and if and when we clinch he's probably gonna see a good amount of playing time just so that we can rest the guys who are going to be on the postseason roster that's pretty much what i see 
all his role is. Yeah, me, me too. Mop-up duty, just giving guys rest. Robbie Scott, who's the fourth guy on this list, um, he's a left-handed specialist. Last year, I think I believe I, I think I was steadfast in my conviction that he was the most overrated reliever in that bullpen because he was kind of heralded and his num- his underlying numbers looked like crap. But I will say he has done exceptional in AAA this year. His strikeout rate is like 11. His ERA is one. His FIP is one. He can get lefties out. He's a he's done. Incre- I didn't know how good he did in AAA, but he deserves this. Um, I, and yeah, I think they should really limit him to purely lefties. And I think he has value in terms of that. It'll be super interesting to see if he does well in September, uh, against lefties and provides like that lefty shutout guy. Cause they really haven't had a guy that they just purely stick against lefties this year. I don't know if Cora subscribes to the philosophy of lefty versus lefty, righty versus righty too much. I know he's interested in it, but it doesn't seem like it's an overwhelming factor when determining his bullpen. But Robbie Scott, if he pitches well, maybe he we he gets a postseason spot. I don't, I don't know. Um, Scott really done well this year. Um, Dave, what about you? What are your thoughts on Robbie Scott? Yeah, Robbie Scott has a real chance to be an impact player on this team in the last month. I'd be astonished if he earned a spot on the postseason roster. But like you said, Pat, he's really, really good at getting lefties out. He's uh, He was on the roster for the grand majority of the 2017 season, maybe the whole season. I don't think he ever got called down off the top of my head. But, um, yeah, Farrell basically used him back then as a lefty-only specialist. Anytime he needed to face righties, it, had, it didn't go that well for him. So if he can improve on that, I think you could see him sort of use the September experience as his uh, sort of audition for a role in the 2019 bullpen. If he can get lefties and righties out, but he needs to show the ability to do both. So that's what I'm going to be watching for out of him. Yeah, me, me too. Uh, we'll see what Scott provides, but I think this might be the most impactful call-up um, on the best chance to make the postseason roster. Um, perhaps outside of the next guy, Bobby Pointer. Bobby Pointer obviously has had a nice appearance with the Red Sox earlier in the year, got called up a couple times. He has very good minor league numbers. This year in AAA, they were worse than I thought. They were not as good. He struggled a little bit, but in the majors, he looked really, really good, and I know that's a small sample size, and I know we're even dealing with a small sample size in terms of AAA, but he did not pitch like the Bobby Pointer we saw, for example, in Portland the year before. So it's kind of disconcerting that he's not as effective, um, but I still believe in Bobby Pointer. Bobby Pointer was my boy in spring training. I devoted a whole episode when I did this by myself in the beginning to Bobby Pointer. Um, it was called the Bobby Pointer tribute episode and it was like, yeah, but anyway, I'm, I'm hopeful that Bobby Pointer will be, uh, effective. I really do like him. I think he's got a lot of potential. He does not obviously blow you away. He does not have velo, but he's a finesse control pitcher and he does well when he's, uh, called upon, I guess. Uh, Dave, what were your thoughts on Bobby Pointer? Yeah, so I'm, not to sound too much like, you know, just your clone here, but yeah, I agree with you, Pat. Um, I was big on Bobby Pointer back in 2017. I really liked him back then when he came up to the majors. He did a great job. I know the Pawtucket numbers haven't been that great, specifically his FIP. I think it's like a 390 or something. Yeah. But that's, it's not great, but I, I've been pushing the Bobby Pointer to get back to Boston train for a while now. I think um, I really like him because he gets lefties out, but he also gets righties out. He's proven to be a guy that's not just good for one or two batters because in today's day and age, sort of lefty-only specialists aren't worth too much. Starters don't go as deep into games, so you need a guy that can eat up a whole inning instead of just one out, and then you have to stretch the rest of the bullpen. 
So I'm going to be interested to see if Bobby Pointer is going to be early early season Major League Bobby Pointer or if it's like a Red Sox Bobby Pointer. Because if it's Major League Bobby Pointer, I think he could uh, possibly steal a postseason spot if he can show that he's still um, the guy that was here in April. So I'm going to be rooting very strongly for him. Yeah, and uh, me, me, me too. I'm, I'm a huge Bobby Pointer fan. Um, outside of JBJ, no, I'm kidding. Um, but the thing about Robbie Scott and the difference between Scott and Pointer, both lefties, obviously. Scott is just really gonna face lefty hitters, and that's it. That's his job. That's his role. Pointer can face righties and lefties with about not equal effectiveness, but close to it. So Pointer's more valuable when a push comes to shove. Scott has his his niche, and he'll probably stick to it. But yeah, that's that's a discerning difference between the two guys, the two lefties, the two southpaws. Um, and I think. These are the five for now. There might be more as the season progresses. But uh, with these moves, the surprising thing was Brandon Phillips did not get called up. So Brandon Phillips started off pretty slow in AAA, but he's been killing it lately. He's 136 WRC plus in AAA, and that's with like almost a sample size that matters and you can extract meaning from. So he's done well. The Red Sox just didn't call him up, and they have a 40-man roster spot open. He's obviously not on the 40-man. So it was pretty baffling that he was not called up i guess but on the other hand now that the red sox have ian kinsler i don't know if they really need him i mean obviously infield depth is good it's a good thing but yeah when they signed phillips they didn't have kinsler and then they traded for kinsler now kinsler's your everyday second baseman okay and then third base you have nunez and holt where is phillips gonna play every day and and i think you want to get him reps almost on a consistent basis i guess i don't know it doesn't really matter but i feel like brandon phillips with his veteran presence kind of deserve no i don't want to say deserves that's no one deserves anything in baseball but um yeah that was interesting that he didn't get the call and i can see why he didn't i don't know if he'll get it later they still have that 40 man spot open which we'll talk about possible scenarios with that in a second um but dave what were your thoughts on brandon phillips not getting the call i'm actually not surprised at all that he didn't get called up this early just because if you call up brandon phillips that takes up the last man on the 40-man roster and then if dombrowski tried to make a waiver line trade he would have had to make the corresponding move in order to get uh, the guy on the 40 so, obviously, he didn't want to do that. What I am surprised by, or what I will be surprised by, is if in a few days, Brandon Phillips is still not on the major league roster. Um, the thing about postseason eligibility, and a lot of people don't know this, I didn't know this either until I got in the Twitter conversation with uh, Mass Live's Christopher Smith. He's a great follow out there for anyone. If you somehow follow this but don't follow him, follow him. Um, but, yeah, he actually brought up a little bit of the rules that I didn't know about. So as long as a player is in the Red Sox organization prior to September 1st, they're eligible for the postseason. As long as they are taking the eligibility of one of the guys on the 60-day disabled list. Right now, we have Dustin Pedroia and Austin Maddox on that list. And Marco Hernandez. We've had uh, Phillips for the grand majority of the year. We can actually call Phillips up anytime in September and say, okay, he's taking Pedroia's eligibility. He's in the postseason. So that's why I think we didn't call him up right then. When we do, and I expect us to, I think um, he'd just join the rotation. He'd battle for one of the last postseason spots because you really don't know. Um, like right now you have um, a lot of depth at second and third. You have, um, you know, Kinsler, like you said, Holt, like you said, Nunez and Devers is coming back from the DL. But each and every last one of those guys has a pretty extensive, extensive injury history. 
So if, you know, worst case scenario, two or three of those guys get hurt as you enter the postseason, you need Phillips there to fill a role. So I fully expect him to get called up pretty soon. And uh, he could work his way onto the postseason roster with a strong September or if injuries strike. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, yeah, that was an interesting tidbit. I, I knew most everyone could be eligible for the postseason, and I didn't know they could uh, supplant one of the sixty-man or the sixty-day DL guys. Um, Marco Hernandez is also on the sixty-day DL for the Red Sox, so that gives them three to. Right, pull Hernandez. From. Yeah, yeah, we got we got Marco. I, I forgot about him too. I don't think anyone's actively thinking about Marco Hernandez, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully he's doing well. I, for, I forgot about him. Um, also, another scenario is, and this is, might sound far-fetched, maybe they're saving the 40-man roster spot for one of their better prospects, like Michael Chavez, who has a 209 WRC plus in AAA, or Durbin Feltman. I know he hasn't really advanced or progressed as much as people would have thought at this point. He's still on high A. I mean, he's done well on high A. Don't get me wrong. He's got like a 238 ERA and 222 FIP. He is straight dominating, but he hasn't gotten to upper level competition once you get to double a i feel like that's when it's you, you don't need to go to triple a to kind of season double a and triple a competition are very similar but i feel like he has to make a cameo and double actually i don't i don't know i don't i don't know i'm not good at player development i have no you know background in it but um going from i would think he would have to be in double a for a little bit before he got the call but that's still a the thought that I had, um, Michael Chavez, circling back to him, he looks ready. He looks better than he did before pre-PED suspension. And I know, Dave, you wanted to talk and write the ship about your feelings, about your initial feelings about Michael Chavez. So I'm, I'm going to let you do that right now. Talk about Chavez. Okay, so um, before I get into Chavis, I want to talk about uh, possible guys for the 40. I, um, I agree that Feltman feels unlikely. He's an incredibly talented guy, but if you were gonna, if you were in the plans for the 2018 Red Sox, he would have been in Portland at some point this year, just because the jump from A ball to Double A is probably the hardest one in the minor league system. To get, there's a lot of career A ball guys, and there's a lot of Triple A guys who are just like washed up veterans who aren't that great anymore, but are there in an emergency. Most of the high level prospects don't spend that much time in Triple A. They're there for like maybe like a month or so just to prove that they're ready and then they get called up. Double A is where a lot of the really good prospects live. So I feel like if the Red Sox were playing around using Feltman, they would have used him in Double A. They would have promoted him then just to see what he can do against a competition that's significantly better than single A. So I don't think it's going to be him. I think it's going to be, if it's anyone that's not Brandon Phillips, I think it's going to be Lincolns, uh, Travis Lincolns for uh He's had a really good out-of-nowhere year as a bullpen arm. We obviously could use another one of those. I'd be astonished if he could prove himself worthy of a postseason spot in September, but I'd be really interested to see what the kids can do if you put him out in, um, put him up in the majors and see how he can do against the best of the best. But anyway, on to Chaffis. So I've been on record of saying I don't think Michael Chaffis is that great. I've seen him multiple times, quite a few actually, in Portland over... 2017, his breakout year. I only managed to see him once in 2018, and he's never played that well when I'm around. When I'm around, but I've officially come to accept that I am the Michael Chaffis bad luck charm. He's only bad when I am there. His numbers don't lie. He's just hitting the absolute cover off the ball every time I'm not in attendance. I've never seen the dude hit better than a single, but his slugging percentage was like 900 this year. 
So it's just it's just me. I've been hilariously unlucky seeing Tapus games. So I'm officially on the bandwagon, even though I still have yet to see anything that special. I can't deny the numbers he's putting out. Yeah, I've I'm I'm baffled by how well he's done so far. Um, Chavis has just torn the cover off the ball since he's come back. He tore the cover off the ball last year, and he's cementing himself still as the number one Red Sox prospect. It'll be interesting to see what happens with him next year if they decide, hey, he's played well enough to deserve a spot on this team because first base is kind of open a little bit. I know Moreland's done well, and he's under contract for another year, but he that that's still available. Um, probably It's probably not a lock that Moreland will be the starting first baseman, but that's offseason stuff that we'll, we'll talk about more. But yeah, um, I think maybe he could I know uh, it would be shocking, but I think he could make the jump. I don't know if they have really a room for him right now. I don't think it would be smart to you know have him be on a as a bench player come up in September. So I don't think it's it's gonna happen. It's, but it's just a dream of mine because I would love to see him at the major league level hitting some dingers. Um, so yeah, you said something about the waiver market. And that's why they kind of didn't use that last spot because they were potentially going to make a waiver move. Then they didn't. So the Red Sox didn't acquire anyone as the waiver period ended. Um, So um, that happened last night. And the Yankees got Andrew McCutcheon. The Indians got Josh Donaldson. The Brewers got Gio Gonzalez and Curtis Granderson. Phillies got Ryan Madsen. I think the Phillies got Ryan Madsen. Yeah, I think he went back to Philly. I don't know. Don't call me on that. It could be wrong. But there were some interesting names. Um, I don't think the Red Sox really should have gone for anyone maybe besides Ryan Madsen. They should have been in, you know, on the reliever front because their bullpen is looking like hell right now. But other than that, yeah, I wasn't too surprised that they didn't make a move. I think they made their moves at the trade deadline. And though Eovoldi is struggling and Kinsler has been doing all right, um, I think they had already made their moves, and I didn't think they were going to make another one. Um, I wouldn't have been surprised if they did, but they ended up not. And now that 40th spot is up for grabs. We'll see if and when they use it. Um, Dave, what what did you think of the Red Sox inactivity in the waiver market? Yeah, you know, I would have liked to see them add a bullpen arm if they could have done it for, like, only money or, like, a very low who-cares type prospect. But I'm not surprised that they didn't. And honestly... I know this is something of an unpopular opinion, but I am very comfortable running into the postseason with this team exactly as it's assembled. Obviously, no one's doubting the offense. Not too many people are doubting the starting pitching, especially once you get Sale and Eddie back. But a lot of people are questioning the bullpen. I think it's going to be fine. You know, Kimball's going to get better. Barnes is going to get better. Um, you have Wright coming back from the DL. He's going to be in the bullpen. He's going to be a huge presence presence uh in the pen i really think he's um his presence is really being overlooked what he can contribute to this team um once the playoffs start you're going to have Evaldi in the bullpen i know a lot of guys don't like Evaldi right now but he's good he's gonna he's gonna be good i fully expect him to get better and figure it out at least for an inning or two at a time because that's all you'd be asking for him in the bullpen and you know all you guys screaming Drew Pomerantz to the rotation. That's not happening, but Drew Pomerantz could be in the bullpen. I hope I'm wrong about him, and he can prove me wrong the 2017 Palm. I don't think he can, but if he can, that's wonderful. I'd be happy to be wrong about that, but I think we have enough good pieces in the bullpen to move forward with this group. We didn't need to add one. This team isn't at, like, you know, 
dead man walking. We're not the 2013 Tigers. So, you know, just not surprised, but could have used one, but not a big deal that we didn't get one. We are not the 2013 Detroit Tigers, but we are run by the same man, Dave Dombrowski, as the 2013 Detroit Tigers. But um, I agree with you in one sense, that the Red Sox bullpen has been a lot better than people think. We've been saying this all year. The numbers back them up. They're seventh among all major league bullpens in war. It's like 4.5. And then in ERA, they have the sixth lowest bullpen group war at 3.44. They've thrown a good amount of innings, so it's not like they're never throwing innings like the Astros bullpen. So it's not skewed too much, and war's cumulative anyway, so don't worry about that. Still, I think the bullpen has some concerns. I do think that it would have been nice to get a bullpen piece. I don't think it was obviously a, a, it was a huge pressing need, but it would have put them in a better position, obviously. Um, that, that didn't need to be said, obviously, if they're upgrading. Um, but they will get guys from the rotation who are going to go to the bullpen. Steven Wright's back. That's going to be cool. Nate Voldy presumably goes to the bullpen. Erod, I guess, maybe stays in the rotation. Um, maybe does some bullpen work. I would assume he'd stay in the rotation. We'll see how he goes. Um, Pomerantz, maybe bullpen. Brian John Johnson, maybe bullpen. So they'll have long guys there, and that'll obviously improve it. But yeah, I think they could have used Ryan Madsen. I think they could have got him for relatively cheap uh, money. It wouldn't have cost a lot. Um, but yeah, it waivers, there's priority and there's claiming. I don't really understand it. It's kind of convoluted. I understand it a little bit. Not as much as I should as a baseball blogger, but um yeah so i hope i wish the red sox got someone i think they are in a not trouble but there are some troubling trends with some of their top guys like matt barnes like um, craig kimbrell and um heath Embry is not not a top guy joe kelly's pitching better but i still think joe kelly's erratic i think matt barnes is erratic craig kimbrell shouldn't be erratic but he's been erratic um Tyler Thornburg is erratic. He's not the guy that he was in 2016. Didn't expect him to at this stage, but he's been showing some sign of struggles. And Ryan Brazier, while he's done well, his underlying numbers are not as um, optimistic about him. So I think if you break down this bullpen, there are some concerning pieces, and they probably could have used an upgrade. But it's not It's not like the Red Sox are in a bad position. They probably have the best roster of any team, maybe outside the Astros or close with the Astros. So they're in a well position. They're well positioned to have a very nice deep postseason run but a bullpen guy definitely could have helped um yeah and now now we'll move on here to this question which i posed on twitter at the bow socks unfiltered twitter account it was who is the better defender jackie bradley jr or mookie betts so this has been a very interesting discussion um the results were very surprising to me at least um so jbj obviously has is more flashy Mookie Betts is you know Mookie Betts he's awesome he's elite but I, I don't know Dave who, who would you think is the better defender um I want to start this by saying they are both gold glovers they're both arguably the best defensive players at their positions uh, somehow Jackie hasn't won a gold glove yet but he absolutely deserves to um so I think that uh if I'm really held like gun to my head, I have to pick one of them. I'm picking Jackie. Jackie just can cover an absurd amount of range. Mookie can too. Don't get me wrong, but Jackie can cover so much range. He knows where every last inch of that ballpark is and where he and the ball are in relation to it. He, um, like just the catches he can make against the wall, knowing exactly where the wall is and how to catch the ball and not break himself in half while doing it. 
I mean, those are just ridiculous. Jackie's arm, while sometimes erratic, I think it beats out Mookie's just in terms of how far he can throw it, how hard he can throw it. And this is to take nothing away from Mookie either. He's a fantastic defender, and he can make he can make just about any catch too. He can, you know, throw he can throw anyone out from a mile away. I'm not denying that Mookie's fantastic, but I'd give it to Jackie by the slightest of margins. Yeah, I think it's close, and I think the results agree with you. I think it was like 80% slanted in JBJ's favor. However, I will have to disagree with the results. Um, Mookie Betts has a 95 career DRS and 56.4 UZR. Defensive metrics are not perfect, but they'd say something, especially when they have such a discrepancy. Jackie Bradley Jr.'s career DRS, 43. Career UZR, 37. These are two very comprehensive metrics, and obviously they're not perfect that they're not all encompassing but when you have such a gap and the thing is jb they are cumulative and jbj has played more innings so if they're cumulative jbj should have more drs more uzr jbj is more flashy jbj has a better arm but moogie Betts is he's more nonchalant about it and he is i think the better defender because he can cover more range he doesn't look as you know he doesn't look as aesthetic when he does it but he is when he covers more ground he's I just think he's the better defender. I think the metrics back that up. So I'm going to go Mookie Betts here, and I think it's very close. I think both are gold glove caliber, and you know how I love my boy JBJ, but I'm going to have to go Betts. And then we're actually moving on to the last topic here. So we're about finished here, um, and we out on Twitter we posted if anyone had any questions about the for us while we were recording and at WTP Greeny said talk about possible rotation scenarios so I assume that this is towards postseason scenarios um, postseason uh, rotation scenario so Dave give me what you think right as of right now what's the Red Sox postseason rotation going to look like so postseason rotation this is assuming everyone's healthy, which they should be right now. So, obviously, number one, you got sale. That's not even up for debate. Number two, I'm going price. Um, they talk, you know, you say a lot about, like, not wanting to go back-to-back lefties. You throw the ball really hard like sale and price do. But I think in the postseason, you got to go with your best two pitchers, which is almost certainly going to be sale and price. Number three, I put in Porcello, assuming that he doesn't, completely collapsed the last month. I think uh, his last few recent starts are just a blip on the radar, but if he keeps struggling, then you got to seriously assess that situation. Number four is going to be Erod for me, just because normally, I spoke about this on one of our other podcasts, normally when Eddie gets hurt, it takes him a little while to find his form when he comes back, but he was absolutely lights out at Portland. He had two starts there. I saw one of them, and you know, you look at the final stat line and it's great, but this wasn't just the case of a major leaguer, you know, striking out bad, like, inferior opponents on pitches that major leaguers hit. His fastball was hitting 94. His slider was moving great. He had great command of the strike zone. So he's, I fully expect him to be basically the same guy he was all season when he comes back. So I, I give him the number four spot. Bullpen wise, you got to go with Evaldi in the pen, probably Johnson too. I haven't really thought out how you'd sort out the playoff bullpen, but that would be my one, two, three, four right there. Mm-hmm. Sale, Price, Porcello, Eddie. 
Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Your 1 through 4 is exactly how I construct my 1 through 4. If Eddie, for some reason, does not look great in the rotation early on, he has some hiccups, maybe I would say Brian Johnson's probably the best bet to be the number 4 guy. I know that he's had some pretty significant splits between his rotation ERA and his and his uh, bullpen ERA. His underlying numbers are pr- pretty much the opposite, so it probably is meaningless. But, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see, I think Johnson as is safer than putting Eovoldi in the rotation. But this is just assuming that Erod, for whatever reason, can't get back to form and has to go to the bullpen because Erod out of the bullpen would be something. Oh, that would be that would be fun to watch with his stuff. But yeah, I, I think uh, Brian Johnson would be kind of like a Doug Fister-esque candidate if all else fails, but I don't expect all else to fail because you got to live life with a half glass full, I guess. Um, but yeah, so... Our departing thought here, uh, Dave. Do you have a departing thought for the listeners? Um, departing thoughts. I really don't think I do. You know, go Red Sox. Let's keep it going strong. If the Red Sox play 500 ball from here on out, I think the Yankees would need to go 21 and six to win the division. So, yay, Red Sox! Yeah, it's the last month. Hopefully, the Red Sox will hold on to this lead seven and a half right now. They play the Yankees six times too, which will make it interesting. But yeah, the Red Sox are in a pretty pretty good spot especially compared to the Yankees much rather be the Red Sox than the Yankees right now um, but my departing thought and I tweeted this out on the Bo Sox and Filter Twitter account was Bobby Dalback, who's been something of a, a, not an enigma but he has been absolutely just killing everything in the minor leagues um, this year um, I think he's over 30 home runs down between double A and high A he's been absolutely just smoking the crap out of everything every baseball is gone so he's, his prospect status has obviously risen. He got the call to double A earlier, and there's something weird in his stat line. So in high A, he, he obviously hit for a crap ton of power, He but he walked like 15% of the time, more like 14. And that's good because he struck out 33% of the time. He's striking out a third of the time. He's walking 14%. Okay, and he's done that for most of his minor league career. What's interesting is now he has a decent sample in double A. I believe it's around 100 plate appearances. Uh, I could be wrong, could be less, but his walk percentage is now 5.5 instead of the 15 it was. So it's cut in third. He's still striking out a third of the time, still hitting for a lot of power, but he's missing that on-base percentage. He's missing those walks, which is weird because that's really kind of sustainable skill between level and between levels. It doesn't really crater that much. There probably is a fundamental shift in something he's doing, I'd have to believe, because that doesn't really just happen. Patience and eye, that's a skill that is very, it's not very malleable. So I don't, I don't know what's going on with that. It's not overt, overtly concerning, but it still is interesting that his walk rate has just precipitously fallen off with no explicable reason. So yeah, that would be my departing thought. Bobby Dalbeck, still very good prospect, very interesting, still has a lot of power, but yeah. Um, so that's going to do it for the 21st episode of the Red Sox Unfiltered Podcast. You can listen to us on iTunes. You can go to SoundCloud. Or you can listen to us through some of the mediums that our affiliate, The Grueling Truth, put us on. So they put us on Stitcher. They put us on iHeartRadio. They put us on Spotify. So you can listen to that on any of those mediums. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. And we'll catch you on the next week's episode, which should be recorded Monday after the Astros series. Have a good one, guys. And go Red Sox.